So this is a hard text, and I'm not just saying that, I'm not making an excuse. The disciples said it. It wasn't me. If you look at verse 60, the next verse in John 6, it says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And it tells us something, which is that if you heard this text as it was just read, and it wasn't hard, it didn't upset you, didn't confuse you, you probably didn't hear it. That sounds strange, but I mean it. So let me show you why this text is so difficult, not only for these disciples, but for us today. First of all, it centers around two questions. If you look at verses 41 and 42, the people who were listening to Jesus said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They think they've caught him in a contradiction. How can you say you've come down from heaven when we know who your father is? That's the first one, and the second one comes later on in verse 52. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a confusing thing to hear, no matter who you are. Now, if you have looked into theology or spent your time in church at all, you might know these questions by their theological names. The incarnation, how God became a man, and communion, how Jesus gives his flesh to be eaten. And you might not know, or you might, that more blood and ink has been spilled over those two topics than nearly any other in the history of the church. It started in the early church. They debated about, well, how can Jesus be both God and man? How can he come down from heaven and be born of Mary? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And how can he give us his flesh to eat if he's also risen from the dead? It continued through the Reformation, through the great awakenings in America, and even to today. And there's three reasons why we keep talking about these things. First of all, they are mysterious. How God became a man, how he gives his flesh to eat, those are mysterious questions. What I mean is that you could ask an engineer in this room to explain the process of combustion. They could tell you exactly what molecules are being used, what's happening, how energy is being transferred. They could explain that to you in such a way that you could recreate it. They know the mechanics of combustion. But if you ask a pastor or a theologian, can you explain to me the mechanics of incarnation? How did God become a man? How does he give us his flesh to eat? You'll get something very different. You can find words to describe it. You can find historical arguments about it where different people stand on it. But what I could never do, what nobody could ever do, is explain to you the intricate mechanics and details of incarnation. It's a mystery. The second reason we keep talking about this is it's important. You might have tuned out already, which is, that's a world record if you have. Very good. But... The reason I expect you might have tuned out to these questions because you're like, oh, this is, this is nerd talk. This is where they talk about the really complex pieces of theology, and I don't need to know that. But these are important questions, and I don't have to convince you to care about them because you already do. You are asking about the incarnation. If you have ever wondered, is God real? How do I know? What is God like? God becoming a man answers those questions, or at least gets you somewhere with them. 
You may have asked questions like, does God love me? Who hasn't? How do I know he loves? How do I come to Jesus? If Jesus has given his flesh and blood to eat, well, that really helps you along in answering those questions. Even if you haven't used the words incarnation or communion, you've thought about this. The other reason we keep talking about these things is because they're primary. And by that, I mean they're usually the first things people encounter in Christianity. If somebody came to me and asked, what are you doing here? And maybe there's someone like that today. Here's what I would say. I would say, well, the world was trapped in this thing called sin, and sin causes death. And so what God did is he became a man, and he created the world, by the way, and that man's name is Jesus. And then Jesus paid for the sin of the world by dying on the cross. He was buried in a tomb, and then he rose from the dead. And then, until he comes again, we're to eat this meal, which is his flesh and blood. Wouldn't you have a couple questions if you hadn't heard it? Like, what is sin, for example? Who is God? How did he become a man? And so on. But the reason we talk about it is because those aren't mysteries you hear about later. They're right on the face of Christianity. A pastor once described Christianity to me as a unashamed supernaturalism, which basically means that our faith is not shy about being mysterious. Some of you are nervous now because I just said a really bad word in our culture, mystery. If you pay attention, you'll notice we're allergic to mystery, to not knowing something. For example, if it's in your future, you want to plan it away. If it's in other people and what they think of you, you want to gossip that away, control that away. If it's in your children, you want to parent that away. That's why you're a helicopter. I mean, you're not, but that's why some people are helicopter parents. Because I can't stand the idea that I don't know what's going to happen to my son or my daughter. And if it's in God, well, that's where you start an inquisition. I've certainly heard people say, well, I would become a Christian, but I have a couple questions first. Between me and Jesus are the answers to those questions. I could keep going, but look for yourself. Where in your life is mystery most painful? Where in your life are your most, most uncomfortable unknowns? Is it in other people? Is it in your career? Your impact on the world? Maybe it's in what happens when you die. Everyone is like this. Because this allergy to mystery is both something we've inherited and it's something we've been taught. It's both nature and nurture. See, it's nature in the sense that if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, that famous story of Adam and Eve, you know how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve? He said, when you eat of this fruit, you will know good and evil, and you will be like God. It was with a secret, something that they currently don't know that they will learn. Many mythologies have piggybacked off of this. Most famous among them probably is the myth of Pandora's box. It's how Greek mythology explains evil in the world. All it took was, was Zeus, the ancient Greek god of thunder, had to give a woman, Pandora, a box and tell her, don't open it. Human nature did the rest. 
But you don't even have to go back that far to know that it's in every person to want to know mystery and get rid of it. Talk to anybody. Step one, say these words. Can I tell you a secret? Step two, watch their face. Watch what happens off of that. You can do it with toddlers. Can I tell you a secret? Even they know. Yes, of course you can. I can keep it. No, they can't. They can't keep a secret. Don't tell your secrets to toddlers. That's just, that's an aside, but it's just very practical. Look, this is a learned behavior too. If you know what the internet is, you've seen this ad. Doctors hate this woman for this one weird trick to lose weight. You've heard that one. Or if you're a golfer, all the time. This one trick that's so secret will fix your golf swing. And of course, some people actually pay for that, believe it or not. They'll get past the paywall behind, you won't believe what Taylor Swift said to Harry Styles. That's how some people make their money, by promising the revelation of a secret. But on a more serious note, in 1885, Johns Hopkins University adopted a motto. Truth will set you free. Now, those are Jesus' words, but they might... I don't think they understand them. That's another text, and we'll get to it at another time. It's in John. But when people hear that, we're excited by it because so many of us, as a companion to our allergy to mystery, have this belief that knowledge is the cure. If only I knew what people thought of me, then I wouldn't be so anxious. I wouldn't be so insecure. If only I knew what the next five years held, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have such a problem with control. If only I knew what was in my spouse's mind, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so nervous. If only I knew what my boss thought of me, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to work so hard. If only I knew, if only I knew I was attractive, I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump into all these relationships. If only I knew. If only I knew who God was. If only I could be sure that I understand him, then I could be a Christian. All those questions, they're mysterious. They're important. They're primary. And it's why this text is so difficult. Because as these people have Jesus in a conversation where they can ask questions, difficult ones, and they do. He doesn't answer them. He doesn't give them an answer. We'll look at the substance of what Jesus says in a minute, but for now, look at the strategy. This is what happens. They say, how can he say he has come from heaven is not this Jesus whose father we know? Nowhere in his response does he indicate that he's answering how he came down from heaven. I mean, he could have said, well, there was this woman named Mary and she's my mother and an angel of this. He doesn't do that. He starts, no one can come to me. Then he keeps going. He adds to the mystery. If you look down a little more, you can see that in 47 to 51, he, said, he repeats what he's been saying this whole chapter. I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me will have eternal life. And he makes it even worse. He says, the bread that I give is my flesh. As if it wasn't bad enough. Then they ask about that. Well, how can you give us your flesh to eat? 
And he doesn't give them an answer. He just says, well, unless you eat it, you're going to die. Why? Why doesn't Jesus accommodate our allergy to mystery? Why doesn't he keep us safe from the unknown? When I first became a Christian, I started a, a Bible study in my dorm room with um, my roommate and his girlfriend, and they weren't Christian at the time. And, and at one point, we were going through Mark, and I was sort of shocked when he said, look, I'm just going to be honest. I don't know what I believe about Jesus, but I don't really like him. He seems like kind of a jerk. He doesn't, he doesn't answer questions when people ask him. He always gives some roundabout explanation. Why wouldn't he just tell us? If I'm honest, I think about that a lot too. Why don't you just tell me, God? Why don't you just make it known? I mean, think about what you could do if you just knew. But then I remember what happens when people do get to know. Now, if you didn't think the sermon was weird before, it's about to get real weird. There was an author named Kurt Vonnegut who wrote a book called Slaughterhouse-Five. It's very weird. It's one of those times where I'll say it's an excellent book. I'm not recommending it as a pastor, but it's a very good book. Don't read it. It's great. <laughs> Slaughterhouse-Five is about a man named Billy Pilgrim. And he starts the book by saying, Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time, which means that he'll jump around to different moments of his life. Everything is an event set in place like on, on, on a train track but he experiences them out of order. So one moment he's a kid at the Grand Canyon with his parents, the next moment he's in World War II, and then the next moment he's back to being a kid, and then at one point he's on an alien planet in a human zoo. Like I said, weird. But he writes about when he gets to this alien planet, he meets an alien race called the Tramphalmadorians. You don't have to know that ever. And this alien race is special because they are also unstuck in time, but they can see all of it. They know everything. Not only what happens to them, but what happens to everybody. They live forever, and they experience every moment of their life all at once. And so Billy has some questions. He says, well, how does the world end? And he says, well, we end it. At one point, we try to experiment with this new kind of fuel, and one of us presses the button, and it explodes the universe. And he goes, well, why don't you stop it? And they respond, he, that alien has always pressed the button. He always will press that button. He's always pressing that button. It's very interesting science fiction. But then Billy goes on to say, so it's silly then, even knowing about all the wars on earth, to think about stopping them. And they say, yeah. And he doesn't really know what to do. And they say, look, that's one thing earthlings might learn to do. If they tried hard enough, ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. That's all knowing everything can do. That's the gospel of knowing everything. When all the mysteries revealed, you'll find you are still powerless to change it. And if you want to die on that hill, literally dying for answers, that's the best it gets. Something bad happens, you look away. Something good happens, you look at it. I'd find it hard to say, at least for myself, that I'd act any different. Knowing everything, having mystery removed, really doesn't help. I know myself enough, and maybe you know yourself enough to know, if I did get to know everything, for instance, what everybody in this church thinks about me right now, I'd become more neurotic. 
I'd become more anxious. If I did get to have the mystery revealed of my future, I'd become more controlling. Maybe I'd try to change it, figure it out. If I got every answer I needed, I'd become more arrogant. And when all is said and done, I couldn't change a thing, couldn't postpone a thing, couldn't postpone the one event everyone wishes they could postpone, their funeral. None of us can. So do you understand why Jesus doesn't take that tactic? Why the elimination of mystery is not his primary concern? As we look at his words, I want to show you what his concern is. When faced with the problem of solving the mystery for people, this is what he talks about instead. He starts in verse 43. After they ask about how can he be from heaven and be from Joseph, he says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's tough for starters. Take half of that first verse, no one can come to me. I'm sure you've heard someone say before, I found Jesus, or I let Jesus into my heart. There's a problem with that. It assumes way too much control. Because what Jesus says is, no one comes to me. At very least, it explains why people have questions and why even the answers don't bring them to Jesus. Because nobody comes to Jesus. He says it happens a different way. The Father, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him near. Did you know that God made the first move with you? He made the first move with you. As you look through this text, see how that develops as a theme. You see in 42, sorry, in 44, the Father draws them near. Jesus raises you up. God teaches people. He brings us to believe in Him. He's made every first move to bring you to Him. There's no mystery you solve, no mountain you climb to come to God. What has happened at every stage is God has brought you near. You see, in, in, in Christian circles, there's this word, testimony. And what it means is, it's a Christianese way of saying, like, oh, this is the, my story of how I became a Christian. There's a problem with most testimonies. The conversion story is always late-dated. It's always, it always happens too late in the story. What I mean is that you'll hear someone say, well, I thought I was a Christian when I was a kid, but I didn't really become a Christian until I heard that sermon. And then if you meet them next year, they might say, well, I thought I was a Christian when I heard that sermon, but I didn't really become a Christian until I went to summer camp, and so on and so on. But even those days, those dates are too late. You see, it happens much earlier. It happened much earlier for you. So you might say, okay, well, did my salvation happen? Did God choose me when I first took communion? You got to go back for, further. What about when I got baptized? Is that when it happened? 
Still too late. What about when I first came to church? Right? That's when God chose. Nope. Still too late. What about when Jesus rose from the dead? Too late. What about when he died? It's too late. Became a man? Still too late. And what else is there? What about when the world was made? It's still too late. See, this is what Paul writes. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When did God choose you for life? Before he made the world. What this means is that before the world was in shape, God had chosen you for salvation. He made the first move long before. He said, let there be light. What it shows you is that despite all of our struggle to understand mystery, God has been moving proactively for salvation. I'm going to return to that theology nerd theme as I read from a theologian I love named Gerhardus Voss. This is what he writes about it. He says, In the unlimitable round of his timeless existence, we have never been absent nor uncared for by him. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. What we are for him and what he is for us belongs to the realm of eternal values. Without this, we are nothing. In it, we have all. What this means is that there was never a point in space and time in which God turned on the switch to love you. He has always loved you. He will always love you. And there was no start date to that love and there was no end date to that love and every move of that love has been proactive. This is a mystery beyond how did God become a man? How did he give us his flesh? This is a mystery. Why does God love me? Why does he who controls everything love me? It's a mystery and it's called grace. And it's the mystery that makes life simple. See, look at Jesus' response to that first question again. We looked at what Jesus does. Look at what you do. You are drawn near. Passive. You are raised up. Passive. You are taught. Passive. You come to God because he calls you passive. You believe in him. That's a response to what he's done. You eat the food that he gives you. Another response. Everything Everything in our faith is either something that God has done to us or something we respond to from him. It is all passive because you didn't initiate this. You didn't question your way into faith. And this makes life simple. Here's what I mean by this. Because some of you don't feel like your life is simple. And that second question When they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He says in 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true true food and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. There's a lot of complicated things in life, but at the core of it all, we're searching for security, something solid we can put our feet on, figure everything else out. There was an old, old PSA I think it started in the 60s. I don't know how long it went, but it's not there anymore. Finish it if you've heard it. It's 10 p.m. Where are your children? Some of you got it. Some of the more experienced people. Sorry, I wasn't going to say another word. It's 10 p.m. Where are your children? Ignore the insanity of that in 2023, by the way, that like you don't know where your kids are at 10 p.m. It's nuts. But let me paraphrase that. Because what it's doing is trying to shock a viewer into awareness of where their most important thing is. So let me do the same. According to that clock, it's 10.56 a.m. Where's your life? It's 10.56 a.m. on Sunday morning. Where's your life? For some of you, some of you who love questions, Life is locked up in a box and you can keep it shut and safe so long as you can keep it together and get things done. As long as you can be efficient and proactive. That's where life is. As long as you can hold it together. And I'm willing to bet that's why you're stressed out all the time and exhausted. For some of you, life is in your hands. It's like a, it's like a balloon that you have to keep up in the air every single day. Do something good. Say something kind. But if you drop it, if you forget, well, everything falls apart. I'm willing to bet that's why anxiety's taking over. For some of you, life is split up into all these little pieces and, and other people have them. And you've got to get them. And you get them by pleasing them and by finding out what they think of you and by controlling. And, and if other people don't approve of you, you never get life. And so, so it all begins to lose its meaning unless you can... Unless you can make everyone happy, serve everybody, make sure they like you and they want to be around you all the time. And I'm willing to bet that's why insecurity has been so difficult, but perhaps most pertinent to this theme of mystery and trying to get rid of it. So many people believe that life is on the top of the mountain. Life is on the top of the mountain and that's where God is too. And you don't have it until you can climb up that hill and get it. You've got to ask all the questions. You've got to work hard. You have to earn it. It has to be on you. And every day is just at least one more step towards getting that life, towards the good life. If you are in Christ, none of those places are where your life is. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Here's what that means. When I was a kid, and I had a birthday party and I got a card and there was money in that card, I don't think I ever touched it. What I mean is as soon as I opened it, my mom had it in her hands. She said, don't worry, I'll keep this safe. I, don't, I never saw a cent of my birthday money. I am owed. <laughs> but it paints the right picture. See, we've talked about how God has chose you before the beginning of time to love you. It's like that. Before your life 
has ever been in your hands to, to spend it or waste it or tear it up or destroy it. It has been in the hands of Jesus. And that's what I mean when I say grace, the fact that God has loved you before the beginning of time makes life simple. Look back to these words again. 56 and 57, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Where is your life? It is in the hands of Jesus and he's not letting anybody take it. And he's not waiting on you to make that happen. He doesn't wait until you get your answers to take hold of your life, to keep it safe, to secure it, and when he returns, to give it to you in fullness. And I know what some people must be thinking. Life for me is not simple. I believe you. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying that your life is just one, two, three. What I am saying that the life that God gives you is simple. It doesn't depend on how well you perform this week. It doesn't depend on your history. It doesn't depend on how many mistakes you've had. It doesn't depend on how many questions you get answered or how much you know. It depends on the fact that Jesus, from before the world was made, took hold of it. And all mystery has loved you before you were even an, a, a collection of atoms. And he will love you until he comes again, at which point that love will extend off into eternity. And so while many things may be unsteady, and I'm sure they are, and I want to hear about them, this is one thing you can safely rest your life on. God loves you, and he controls everything. And there's only one way that that can go. I used this illustration when the Marvel movies were popular, so forgive me for recycling it. There's a plot, uh, there's an idea in stories called plot armor. You know what it is. It's basically when uh, you know a character is so important that they can't, they can't die, and so you don't worry when you read about them. So the reason I mention Marvel movies is because if you go and watch Iron Man 1 right now, you'll be bored out of your mind because you know that Iron Man 2 exists. So he's going to be fine. What does it matter? So the tension, the suspense, it's all gone. It's a simple movie. When you open to the end of the Bible, and I won't read it because I want to invite you to do it, read Revelation 21, and you'll see yourself there. You have plot armor, and that's what this text shows you. You have plot armor in such a way that you know you're going to be at the end because Jesus has promised it. And that takes away the crippling tension of solving everything, doing everything, making it all work. Because your life is in Jesus and he's holding on to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this mystery of grace, for the provision of your love, the life that you give us. I thank you that you have been generous and kind to us. You've given us everything we need. Help us now to embrace this mystery that you love us and you control everything. In Jesus' name, amen.